Often in time, in life, uh, we find ourselves searching. Sometimes we're searching for, for things like lost keys. Or a lost phone. Or a lost wallet. That's the trifecta. Um, our marriage sometimes struggles be, because we are searching for a lost remote control. Sometimes you have to search for your lost pet. In my case, after every church service, I have to search for a lost kid. 70,000 square foot building. I go right to the security cameras. I can see every corner of the building. Say, yep, there he is. He's right over there. Sometimes we're searching for information. Thank God for Google. Did you know that Google receives over 63,000 searches per second on any given day? Which if you do the math, it it translates into at least 3.8 million searches per minute. 228 million searches per hour, 5.6 billion searches per day, and 2 trillion searches per year. Sometimes we're searching for things we want. Thank God for Amazon Prime. 150 million Amazon Prime subscribers. 4,000 items sold every minute on Amazon, and 2,500 of them are my wife. (laughs) And for the first quarter of 2020 alone, Amazon brought in $75.5 billion in sales revenue. I mean, as Americans, we know how to search for what we've lost or what we need or even what we want. And so did the nation of Israel. The book of 1 Samuel is all about searching. They're not searching for a product on Google or or, or Amazon Amazon Prime. They're, They're searching for a king. You see, up to this point in Israel's history, they had been a nation separated by tribes and and ruled by judges. And the book of 1 Samuel chronicles their transition from from this tribal confederacy to a monarchy. They didn't want judges anymore. They didn't want tribes anymore. They wanted a kingdom, and they wanted a king. And so they went searching for one. Here's the sad thing, though, about Israel's search for a king. They already had one. Their king was God himself. He rescued them from Egyptian bondage. Think about that. How foolish is it to search for an earthly king when your king is the king of kings? That's like having Lincoln Riley as your head coach, but choosing Mike Gundy to replace him. Just stupid, right? But before you're too hard on them, let's consider ourselves. Because we're not that different than Israel sometimes. Even though we know our king is Jesus. For save, we, we have him as king of our life. But like Israel, we're still prone to replace him with lesser kings. See, here's what happens in life. We go through difficult times. We face seasons of life where we feel empty. We feel barren. We, we feel hopeless. I'm going to say it this way tonight. We experience a God-sized void. But instead of filling that God-sized void with God, we search for a king to fill that void. Our king come in different shapes and different sizes as those around us and, and the culture around us are always there to offer their quick fixes and suggestions and remedies for this hole in our heart that only God himself can fill. So we see ourselves in this book of the Bible. But it doesn't start with Israel's search for a king. We'll get there eventually. It actually starts with the woman's search for a son. So what Israel was searching for on a national level, Hannah was searching for on a personal level. 
And how she dealt with her barrenness, how she dealt with her void was a lot better than how Israel was going to deal with theirs. And it's a lot better than how we sometimes deal with ours. Let's begin in verse number one. I can't promise to pronounce these names correctly. Now there was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah or Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. Now let me, let me put a stop right there. Look up here. You might, you might say, it doesn't seem like in the Old Testament God ever forbids multiple wives. So, so, so what's going on there? Well, you've got to understand that, that God doesn't always forbid something in Scripture by just saying, thou shalt not. Sometimes he inspires a narrator like, like he did in the Old Testament to show us the cause and effect of such a practice. And so if you will study the Old Testament and, and if you will study all the results and the causes and the effects of having more than one wife, there's not a single good result. And that's God's way of saying, not a good idea. Not my plan. Okay, let's read on in verse 2. The name of the one was Hannah and name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So here's Hannah, the main character of the first chapter. She was a woman who, if I put it plainly, really was down on her luck. Her problem was that she was unable to have children. She was barren. Now, now as devastating as infertility is today, it was absolutely distressing in this day. Because you could read the Jewish uh, Talmud, and, a, and it says that a person without children, I quote, is as good as dead. It says that barrenness was even a legitimate grounds for divorce. So then I asked the question, why was it so crucial for a woman to be able to have children and multiple children? Well, at least three reasons. First, Israel's society was agrarian, which, which meant that the more sons a person had, the more potential laborers there were to work the land. And, and the more wor workers there were, the greater the crops yield. And the greater the crops yield, the greater the income. And the greater the income, the higher the status. The higher the status, the more power. Second, Hannah lived in an age before Social Security, before the 401k. So children were the retirement plan of the ancient world. The more children a couple had, the more likely it was for them to be taken care of in their old age. Third, it's a brilliant idea, isn't it? Too bad my parents are in the congregation tonight. Third, having children was necessary for the survival of the nation. The economy and military were completely dependent on families having a large number of children. That means that women who bore a lot of children were heroes in this day. They were treated with honor, but women who weren't able to bear children experienced shame. Instead of respect, they were looked upon with pity. They felt useless. Now, if you know your Old Testament narratives, you understand that this theme of barrenness comes up a lot, doesn't it? A lot of women that struggle with infertility and God chooses to put that in the canon of Scripture. Why is that? Because I believe barrenness is an effective metaphor of feeling empty. Feeling hopeless. Barrenness represents something missing in your life that you wish you had. Something you can't feel yourself. It represents a God-sized void. And the pain of barrenness might affect us a little differently than it did in 1 Samuel 1 in the life of Hannah. But the pain still feels awful. And I'm certain that they're in a crowd this size. There are some that even right now are experiencing a God-sized void in their life. 
That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that you feel like something is missing in your life that you wish was there. For some, the void is a barren womb. It is infertility. And having experienced that ourselves, Jenny and I know the deep pain and, and emptiness and void that infertility leaves in the heart of, of a couple who long to be parents. For others in here, the void you're experiencing is a result of a bad home life. You're currently missing out, or maybe you did miss out on having a loving mother or a present father, and you didn't cause that, and you can't control that, but it leaves a void in your life to this day. I think for some, the void is relational. You feel like you're supposed to be married, but you're not. You've been married, but you've been betrayed. You were married happily for a long time, but you had to bury your, 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 your husband or your wife, and now you're a widow or a widower. Or maybe the relational void has nothing to do with marriage, but you just long for, for, for a real authentic relationship, a friendship, and you don't have one. And if you're honest, the relational void is sometimes devastating to you. Hey, I could talk about a void you feel because of failing health or a void you feel because of a lack of success in your career or a void you feel because of mistakes that you've made and opportunities you forfeited through bad decisions. The truth is we can all relate to Hannah. But what makes matters worse for Hannah is that Elkanah's other wife, Penina, had a lot of children. Ten. And daily, Hannah was confronted with her failure by a rival who was all too willing to rub it in her face. Look at verse 2. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now watch how Penina played on this, verse 6. And her adversary, talking about Penina, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Did you, did you see the, the word that the narrator used to describe Penina's behavior? Provoke. The narrator used that on purpose because in the Hebrew, that word literally means to thunder. It means to roar like a storm. It was the type of word that they would use to describe in their day what, what was a terrible thunderstorm. In other words, Penina would provoke Hannah daily to the point where Hannah's emotions were thundering and roaring like a hurricane. So much so, she didn't even have no appetite to eat. It made her so sad. What did that look like? I don't know exactly. I don't know. M maybe it was dinner time and, and Hannah and Elkanah were sitting by themselves at the table and there's 11 open spots, one for Penina and one for her 10 children. And Penina would come and she would shuffle into the, the, the dining room and, and, and Hannah and Elkanah would be sitting there. And Penina would say, Hannah, are you sure you made enough spots for all my kids? You remember I have 10, right? Come on, Titus. Come on, Matthew. Mark. Whew, I got a lot of these. Luke. John. Acts, Romans, First Corinthians. I ran out of Bible names. And she would say whatever she could, she could use to just stick a dagger into Hannah. Hannah's already vulnerable. But Penina was the devil's way of getting Hannah to act or to feel uh, um, such a, a depression and hopelessness where she would be tempted to feel that God-sized void with something other than God. 
And listen, the devil does the same thing to us. He provokes us and he accuses us in an attempt to get us so hopeless that we run from God instead of to God. The devil will whisper, it'll never change. You might as well give up. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let that happen. If church was really worth it, why aren't you fixed yet? Without that job, without that position, without that salary, you're not a success. You don't have a real purpose. Hey, look at all the people you work with who don't put the kingdom of God first. Their kids are happy. Their finances are doing great. They look very, very happy and like they're having a blast and you're miserable. And the devil will work overtime daily, relentlessly, just like Penina, to get you thinking about every other option outside of God. And right about that time, watch here, Elkanah will come along. Elkanah was, was Hannah's husband. He truly loved her. But he did something that was kind. But this kind gesture from him to Hannah in the midst of her grief actually became something that had the potential to be a false savior in her life. I want you to follow this, verse 4. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. Now did you catch what he did? As a sign of his affection... Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion of food. That's kind of an odd way of, of showing romance. I mean, guys, have you ever given your wife two scoops of mashed potatoes just to let, you, let her know you love her? That was his attempt to romance her. It didn't work because she didn't have an appetite. And so you know what he did? He went to his words. If food won't get her, Chocolate won't get her. Maybe my words will. Look at verse 8. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart greed? And not I better to thee than ten sons? Watch your sweetheart. Why are you sad? I love you, and you've got to realize that my love is better than the love you would feel from ten sons combined. Now, that's a lot of confidence. Elkanah was trying to offer Hannah romantic salvation. Telling her that, that through his love, he would be able to fill the void in her soul. Here's the problem with El Elkanah's romantic solution. It failed to address Hannah's hurt. Year, year after year, the narrator says they would go up for the sacrifice and Elkanah's devil portion couldn't steal the storm of Hannah's heart. And the same thing happens in our life after experiencing this painful combination of having a void in our hearts and then being provoked by our penina to the point of hopelessness. And Elkanah, a false savior, will come along to fill that void. The most popular preaching is that Elkanah's come in the form of something obviously bad. Alcohol, drugs, nicotine, pills, porn, anything that will dull the pain. But I think that for most children of God, Elkanah comes in the form of something not so obviously bad. Elkanah comes in the form of work. Please hear me. Elkanah, during a vulnerable time, comes in the form of work. Work is not bad. But becoming a workaholic, that's bad. That is a false savior. Elkanah comes in the form of food, stress eating. Elkanah comes in the form of your spouse, your children, spending money, participating in hobbies, vegging out, 
traveling, things that just like Elkanah was to Hannah, not sinful, not bad, but something other than God to fill a God-sized void. But here's what you've got to understand. Don't miss this. God-sized voids cannot be filled with man-sized solutions. Our tendency is to cling to false saviors that have no power because we feel like they're the best option we have in the moment. But the truth of the matter is, is that, is that most of our problems come not just because of the sadness of the void we're filling, but more so because we try to fill that void with something other than God. That's where the problems come in our life. Yes, it hurts to be void. It, it hurts to be missing something. It hurts to be barren in some area of life. But you know what hurts worse? When we try to fill a God-sized void with a man-sized solution. So what would Hannah do? She had a void. She was being provoked to the point of depression. At just the right time, she was being offered a false savior of romance. Would she take the bait? Or would she fill the void with God? Look at verse 9. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore and she vowed a vow. Don't miss this. Look at the first phrase of verse 9. So Hannah rose up. Now, this is not just a passive detail. It's not like the author is saying she got it from the table, went to the living room. The Hebrew word for rose up indicates decisive action. Hannah stood up, resolved, and made a choice to pray. By the time, by the way, anytime you fill your God-sized void with God, it will be a result of you choosing to rise up, to be resolved, and to make a deliberate choice of faith. It won't happen on accident. It won't, it won't be a result of I'm just going to wait till I feel like it. She was still bitter of soul. She chose to ignore her feelings for long enough to mind her faith. And she started praying, which teaches us this. God-sized voids can only be filled with God-sized solutions. And it's in her prayer and it's through her vow that we see what it looks like to fill a God-sized void with a God-sized solution. I'll say it like this. You know God is filling the void when, number one, you still believe he's good even though you're barren. Look at the first part of verse 11 again. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid. Don't, for, don't, 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 don't let this just go by. Because, because when Hannah began her prayer by pleading with God to remember her, Hannah indicates that she perceives that God cares for the plight of a barren farm woman who everyone else was saying was a failure. Did you notice what she called God? The Lord of hosts. That's a term that describes the power and rule that God has over all the angelic hosts of heaven. Yet Hannah believes that though God is so big and so powerful, he is still the kind of God who cares for small, broken, and barren people. How do you know that you're filling God, uh, filling your void with God? Hey, listen, when you're barren, when you're empty, when something is missing in your life that you want, yet you still believe by faith that he loves you and he cares for you and he sees you and he knows you and he remembers you and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. How do you know if you're filling your void with God? If when you haven't gotten what you prayed for, but you still believe that he notices every sparrow that falls to the ground and he will notice and care about every detail of your life. 
How do you know that you're filling your void with God? It's when you look around at all the Peninas in your life and they have what you so desperately want, but you still believe that if he will take time to clothe the flowers of the field which are short-lived, he will certainly meet the needs of his own child who is destined to live with him for all of eternity. When you believe that in spite of not having what you want, you're filling your void with God. But when you get to the point where you no longer are believing by faith that God is good, you know, are long, you're no longer getting up with resolve, going to your prayer closet and thanking him for remembering you. That's when you are destined to fill your void with something other than him. Notice, secondly, you know God is filling the void when your joy is not dependent upon getting what you're asking for. Look at the last part of verse 11. He says, but, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child. Then will I give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now study with me for a minute. Hannah offers to give back to God any son he gives to her. And the detail about no razor touching the boy's head um, shows that Hannah is invoking what they called in that day a Nazarite vow. That was a special provision. You've heard of Samson having the Nazarite vow. Special provision for those in the nation of Israel who wanted to serve God like a priest. Because normally, now catch this, only those sons born in the house of Levi, the priestly tribe, were allowed to serve in the temple. So if a person such as Samuel outside of the, the Levite tribe desired to serve in God's presence, he could take the Nazarite vow to consecrate himself. Now what's the point? Well, when Hannah takes this vow, it means she's giving up all claims to her son in order to let him live in the temple and serve God. In other words, she renounces everything that would have been valuable about having a son in that day. Her son would not grow up in her house. He would not be her emotional support. He would not be able to take care of her when, when she got old. He would even have a land inheritance just as the Levites would have no land allotment in Israel. So Hannah prayed for a son, but then laid aside every benefit a son could have given her. You can read the rest of the story in the next three or four verses. And Hannah is so fervently praying that Eli the priest thinks she's drunk. And we get to verse 18 after she ends her prayer. And I want you to look at it because it says this. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Now time out. Catch this. This is a unique order of events, because we might expect it to go like this. Hannah prays. Hannah gets pregnant. Hannah is no longer sad. But instead we read, Hannah prays. Hannah is no longer sad. Hannah gets pregnant. You see, Hannah's attitude changed before she became pregnant. Before she got what she was asking for. You know why? Because she found a source of joy in something greater than her hope of a son. It was in God himself. You know God is filling the void in your life when you can genuinely rejoice in him, even when your dreams are unfulfilled. Here's the truth. Many among us, even tonight, will never have a child despite pleading with God for one. Many will never get a better paying job, even though you've worked hard for and prayed for one. Many will never get well again from their sickness. By all the world's standards, some in this congregation will die barren. But this story is not teaching us that if we pray hard enough and long enough that we can strong arm God into giving us what we want. 
No, this story is teaching us that we may die barren, but if we die with God, we have enough because when we have God, we have everything. If you have a loving and powerful God at the center of your life, you can endure the most difficult of struggles and the most empty of seasons and the most painful of barrenness you ever know, and you don't have to be sad about it. That's good. How do we know that God is filling the void? When we're able to place our faith in his goodness to us, even though we're barren. When our joy is not dependent upon getting what we're asking for. And notice one more. You know God is filling the void. When you can get what you want from him without replacing him with it. Look at verse number 19. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore, it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel. Some say that that name means um, I have been heard, saying because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned. And that I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do it seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And don't miss 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bullocks and one ephah flour and a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they, sh- they slew a bullock and, and, and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, also, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Question. Hannah spent that time weaning Samuel. That is after nine months of carrying Samuel. Just because she was surrendered and committed didn't mean she took on deity. She was still very human. And mothers, would you not agree that when you spend nine months carrying a child and months after that weaning a child, that separating from that child is very difficult? She's still a mom. She begged God for this. For years, she would weep and pray year after year as they took their sacrifice up to the temple. God, give me a son. And God finally gave her a son. And if I were her, I would probably have been an Indian giver. Yeah, God, if you give me, if you give me Samuel, then I promise I'll give him back. But after getting close to him and bonding with him, I don't think I could have done it. But she did. She gave him back to the Lord, not temporarily. Did you see the language of the text? As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. How could she do that? Because as much as she loved Samuel, he wasn't her everything. God was. Next Sunday night, we'll talk about the song she wrote in chapter 2, where she said this of God, He is my rock. She didn't say Samuel's my rock. 
She said, God is my rock. Listen, it's one thing to reject the Elkanahs that come along and tempt us to fill a God-sized void with a man-sized solution. It's one thing to do what Hannah did and make commitments to God. If you give me this, then, then I'll do this. All of that is good, but it's something entirely different to finally get what you've asked for and still keep God as your king. We beg God for children. He gives them to us. And they become our God. We beg God for a spouse. He gives us one. Then our life and our schedule is centered on that relationship and on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our happiness is found in that relationship more than the Lord Jesus Christ. We beg God for a promotion. We beg God for a raise at work. He gives us one, but we don't tithe off of it. We instantly start asking and working for another one. We beg God for healing. He gives it to us, but instead of using our newfound energy for him, we use it for every cause but his. You know God is filling the void when you can, like Hannah, get what you wanted from him without replacing him with it. Hannah's story teaches us that God-sized voids can only be filled with God-sized solutions. I want you to think about this as I close. In the larger narrative, Hannah's story is pointing us to Israel's story that we'll eventually study. Now, don't miss this, please. They had a void because they didn't have a king. But instead of filling that void with, with God, they filled it with man, King Saul. And we're going to study that it didn't end up very well for them. For years, they suffered because they filled a God-sized void with a man-sized solution. Thankfully, God sent to them a better king, his choice of a king, a man after his own heart, David. Follow this. But we'll get to 2 Samuel. And even David left them feeling void. Because David was a poor father. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And the kingdom they dreamed of having eventually became divided. Which really brings us to what Hannah's story ultimately points us to. The flawless king. King Jesus. This story is not just an isolated incident about a woman, her romantic husband, and a miracle child. It's about lost people. It's about us. It's about how King Jesus came to save us. Because just like God brought Samuel through a, through a poor girl who didn't have much going for her, he brought Jesus to us through a Nazarite girl who didn't have anything going for her. Our real shame, listen, our real brokenness doesn't come from the fact that we can't have kids or we're not married yet or we aren't successful. Our real shame comes ultimately because we have a broken relationship with our Creator. Our real shame comes from our attempting to fill that void with cheap substitutes. That's why we need Hannah's story tonight. Because it teaches us that Jesus Christ, the flawless King of Kings, is the only thing that can adequately fill the void in our soul. Work can't do it. Money can't do it. Success can't do it. Marriage can't do it. Children can't do it. Possessions can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Because God-sized voids can only be filled with God-sized solutions. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?